The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us as we kick off Thanksgiving week. My guests today are Rob Arnott, founder and chairman of Research Affiliates, which develops investment strategies and products, and Darren Fonda, Barron's managing editor and, and head of, excuse me, Barron's markets editor and head of crypto coverage. Today, we, we typically on Mondays, we spend the call talking about the week ahead in stocks, but today we're going to look at the bigger picture, which plays to Rob's strengths, and Rob has many fans at Barron's, including Darren and me, and I think you're going to understand why as we dive into some of his recent research. So with that, Rob and Darren, thanks for joining me today on Barron's Live, and welcome. It's a thanks, Lauren. So Rob, I'm going to start with you and your big paper on inflation, which is the topic du jour. You mm-hmm. wrote a paper recently called How Transitory is Inflation? I know we were supposed to retire the transitory word, but it's a good question. I'm glad you glad you brought it up again. You argued from the start of that piece that the Fed is dangerously optimistic in thinking it, it can bring inflation back down to 2% fairly quickly. So what is to you the more likely scenario and how should investors prepare? Well, firstly, what we did in our uh, small research paper was to take the 14 developed economies in the OECD, limiting it to the countries that have been developed for 50 years. So no newbies included. It's a a fair and proper comparison universe. And um, those 14 countries, we went back 50 years and asked, what happens when you get a bout of inflation? And we use 4% as the threshold at which it starts to become interesting. What we found uh, is a shocking lack of patterns, Um, shocking dispersion in how long it takes for inflation to come back down. So the inflation optimists who say, we've already seen the peak and uh, inflation will be under control in the next year or two, There's plenty of historical evidence that supports that, but it's all in the leftmost quintile, the 20% best scenarios. The median is nowhere near that. Furthermore, there's a right quintile of worst case outcomes where inflation is sticky and stays high for a decade or longer. How do you know what quintile to put the US in? You don't until after the fact. <laughs> right. So, so our basic message is, um, you want to believe that? Fine. You can believe that. You might be right. But you ignore the right tales at your peril. Um, one pattern that did come out is if you cross 4% inflation, 60% of the time, it doesn't go on to new highs. Uh, it doesn't cross 6%. We used thresholds of four, six, eight, ten, 10, and so forth. Uh, 
And so 60% of the time it is transitory with a median time to get back down to 2% inflation of a year. All right, well, that's great. That's when, uh, that's when Powell coined the expression transitory inflation, uh, when it crossed 4%, he said it's transitory. Now I, I look back on that and I think it was 4%, but the previous three months was eight annualized. Half of the four was in three months. So you had inflation accelerating fast, and he says transitory. Uh, that struck me as very dangerous at the time. I was on record uh, back in March, April of 2021 saying this inflation is not going to be transitory. It's going to accelerate before it recedes. And that's where it starts to get interesting. When it crosses 6%, uh, 60% of the time, it does go on to new highs. When it crosses 8%, 80% of the time, it goes on to new highs. Now there's 20% of the time that's benign, that rolls over and is truly transitory. But that's the best quintile. That's not, should not be your central expectation. So this was a, a, a fun and interesting um, project. Fun, not so much in the form of good news, but fun in the form of interesting insights and challenging conventional wisdom, because it's not just the Fed, it's the Fed and Wall Street and the economics community that's united in saying this is transitory inflation. And our answer to that is, yeah, it might be, but that's the best quintile. You ignore the other quintiles at your peril. So where do you think inflation is heading and how long will it take for the Fed to bring it down? Um, I'm of the view that history is a very useful guide. Now, that best quintile, that means 20% of, of, uh, uh, of the 50 plus cases of 4% inflation, 20% uh, of the um, uh, 18 cases of 8% inflation or more uh, did in fact come down in reasonably short order. I can hope for that to be the outcome. I do hope for that to be the outcome. I do think it's not a 20% likelihood. I think it's more like a 40% likelihood, but it's certainly not my central expectation. The right tail of the distribution, the worst quintile, uh, takes over 10 years to get back down to 4% inflation, let alone two. Do I think that's a 20% risk? No, I think that's... Uh, uh, more of an outlier than it would have been historically. Uh, I, I like to believe that our management of economic affairs is more informed than it was 50 years ago. But be that as it may, I would certainly say that's a 10% chance. So a 10% chance that we're still sitting here 10 years from now with uh, some measure of inflation. And that's disturbing, both because it's not a pretty picture and because the uh, uh, academia, um, the, the investments community, uh, the punditry, the politicians, none of them credits that possible outcome as being remotely conceivable, let alone uh, a 10% risk. I can't imagine what interest rates would be at that point. <laughs> exactly. So 
Interest rates is another topic that I think is just fascinating. Uh, we wrote a paper um, in June in which we suggested that people should prepare now for recession. Not so much that we are inevitably headed for recession, but that business managers should manage their business on the presumption that uh, we are reasonably likely to have a recession. And the basis for that was the Fed's uh, sudden discovery of, of the uh, idea of tightening to wring inflation out of the system. Now, interest rates are a fascinating topic on many levels. People talk about Volcker and of Powell channeling his inner Volcker. What did Volcker do in, back in 1980? You, you had inflation peak at 14.7% in March of 1980. Uh, that inflation peak uh, was followed by Volcker raising Fed funds to 20%, 5% higher than the peak for inflation. Well, 5% higher than our recent peak would mean Powell raises the Fed funds rate to 14%. Well, <laughs> that's not going to happen, uh, not unless we have protracted double-digit inflation. But uh, in reasonable scenarios, that's not going to happen, which means Powell is not channeling his inner Volcker. He's play-acting at channeling an inner, inner Volcker. He's playing tough, but not being tough the way um, Volcker was. So if he did channel his inner Volcker, if he did take Fed funds to double digits to uh, force inflation out of the system, what would be uh, the implications of that? Well, firstly, it would be a, a major recession. We, we had a double dip recession in response to Volcker's tightening. Secondly, it would bring inflation under control uh, slower than most people would imagine. With Volcker, it took two years for inflation to get down to 7%, half of the peak, let alone down to 2 or 3%. It took six years to get down to 2%. Six years, most of which was with double-digit Fed funds rates, uh, just to get back down to 2 So the notion that inflation is benign, one-off jolt that'll dissipate fast. Uh, possible? Yes. Likely? No. Um, <clears throat> John Cochran's done some wonderful work in which he uh, suggests that once debt exceeds a certain threshold where uh, society can't afford to service more debt than it already has, and we're there, by the way, that if you take on debt that's 20% of GDP on top of what you already have, then you have to expect the currency to drop 20% in purchasing power to bring that debt back down to the same threshold as a percentage of GDP that it used to be. And I think it's a fascinating thesis. I, I don't fully understand it. I, uh, I need to dive in and study it more closely, but it rings true. If your debt level is too high, getting it back down to sustainable, manageable levels requires inflation as a soft form or a backdoor form of default. It's a partial default on debt to inflate the currency and reduce the real value of the debt. So I think that our 
policy choices. We have the we have the Fed stepping on the uh, stepping on the brake. We have uh, fiscal policy stepping on the accelerator, and we know that if we're driving a car and we have our pedal to the metal on the accelerator and our foot firmly on the brake, that God only knows what'll happen. But it won't be pretty. I won't and try it. That's for sure. Right so let's talk a little bit about investing at this point. It looks like we're going to live with higher rates. We're going to live with higher interest rates and we may live with a lower dollar, but switching to investing, you've spent a lot of time analyzing the relationship between growth and value investing. And you co-authored yes. an article last year in the financial analyst journal that stated that the death of value had been greatly exaggerated. And we should remember that when you wrote this growth stocks were sky high, all the FANG stocks were really soaring, but the piece was remarkably prescient because those stocks have all fallen. Value has made a big comeback. So yes, now I, I can't resist asking whether the death of growth has been greatly exaggerated this year. <laughs> uh, thank you for asking that. One of the things we looked at, uh, I, I wrote a paper in 2016 that was very controversial. Um, uh, our competitors were uh, pretty relentless in their cr criticism of the work. Uh, in that paper, we showed that any factor or any strategy, a factor, for example, the value factor is value versus growth. It's not value as a standalone strategy. It's the spread in performance between value and growth. And in that paper, we showed that uh, the relative cheapness of value is not static. It's very volatile. If you take the 30% cheapest and compare it with the 30% most expensive using price to book, which is the classic academic definition of value. And by the way, it's a lousy definition. But uh, if you use price to book um, and look at the tails, the 30% on each extreme, what you find is that historically, um, growth is about five times as cheap as value on average. It gets up to um, an extreme in the tech bubble of 10 times as expensive as value. And then in 2020, it got to 13 times as expensive as value, 30% richer relative to value than it was during the tech bubble in 2000. Just astonishing spreads. So the paper firstly pointed out that the spread in relative valuation is not static, it varies a lot. Secondly, we pointed out that when the spread is uh, unusually wide, meaning that value has gotten unusually cheap, that that shows up in historical performance. It shows up in value performing lousy. Well, of course, anything that's newly cheap usually got there by inflicting pain. And um, so one of the controversial points that we made was that if something has gotten cheaper relative to its underlying fundamentals, uh, its past performance will be lousy. Well, that's not surprising. That's a pretty banal observation. It's, it's intuitive. Um, the second observation was that if there's any mean reversion, then what's become abnormally cheap can be expected to rebound, not necessarily all the way back to historic norms, but is highly likely to rebound. And anything that's gotten abnormally expensive is likely to falter. That again was dismissed as 
something not applicable to factors and strategies. Well, it turned out to be very applicable and it's turned out to be spot on in identifying which factors have worked well uh, of late and which ones haven't. But be that as it may, uh, value got cheap to an unprecedented extent in the summer of 2020 relative to growth stocks or put a different way, growth stocks became more stratospheric relative to any um, uh, measure of um, uh, relative underlying business strength. Uh, over 30% in August of 2020, over 30% of the NASDAQ 100 stocks, 30 out of 100 stocks, were trading at more than 10 times annual sales. So our point was twofold. One that we can come back to if there's time, that book values a, a, a terrible measure in today's information and intellectual property-based economy. Um, and the second was that value and growth follow a normal cycle. When one gets ex more expensive than usual, it usually falters. And when one gets abnormally cheap, it usually recovers nicely. Now, here's a surprise. Um, how many of our listeners believe that including the value crash in the COVID market, where value in the first eight months of the decade uh, underperformed growth by 4,000 basis points, 40 percentage points spread between Russell growth and Russell value. How many uh, of the listeners uh, are aware that value is now ahead of growth decade to date? Even I was surprised by that. If we, have, we have no way of taking a poll here. But no, just the listeners can ask themselves yeah. the question, am I surprised by this? Just think in terms of um, if you um, lose 40% for value relative to growth, to just get back to normal, value has to beat growth by 67% just to get back to break even. It's done that. Value is now ahead of growth decade to date. Wow. So is it too late? Back to your question, is the death of value <laughs> premature? My short answer to that would be we've gone about halfway back from the extremes of valuation in summer of 2020 back to historic norms. That leaves plenty of room for this to run for years to come. Now, there's another backdrop to this that's just fascinating. Inflation is wonderful for value stocks. If you go back over the last hundred years, any decade where we had uh, inflation higher than 4% for a decade, um, value historically beat growth by anywhere from 6% per year for the decade to 10% per year for the decade. And this decade looks poised to be not unlikely to come in above four as an annualized inflation rate for the decade. We're, we're at five and a half decade to date through today, and it wouldn't require much in the way of elevated inflation through the end of the decade for it to average something north of four. Right. Uh, our own forecast is 4% for the coming 10 years, let alone the current decade. Rob, um, 
You know, the S&P 500 is uh, probably the most widely followed index. Um, you know, millions of investors have their retirement savings and in index funds pegged to the S&P. Um, it was very heavy in tech um, and growth stocks uh, before mm-hmm. this latest reversal. Is the And now that all those stocks have kind of fallen quite a bit, is the index, is the, the main cap-weighted index that uh, a lot of people invest in, is it more attractive now um, from a valuation perspective, given that it's less top-heavy in tech and high multiple growth? The short answer to that question is, of course it is. Um, I'm often asked by people, um, uh, you have a cautious view on U.S. equities, should I get out? And my reaction is, well, you should have gotten out a year ago. But if you're in it now, you should be beginning to look for entry points, not exit points. Um, And I say beginning to because I, I would be utterly unsurprised if stocks have another leg down. I would also be mildly unsurprised if we've already seen the lows. Um, I like to buy when you're at peak fear. I also like to buy what's cheap. We've seen elevated fear. I'm not sure we've seen peak fear yet. Uh, We haven't seen a capitulation market. But what we have seen is sharply elevated fear in equities around the world. Um, That typically marks a low. Uh, uh, Peak fear typically marks a bottom. What do I mean by peak fear? You have a lot of reasons to not want to buy because so many things are going wrong and so many things could get worse before they get better. That's peak fear. Peak fear tends to coincide with market bottoms. And if you're thinking of buying, everyone around you will tell you why you shouldn't. Um, That's a great time to buy. I think we've seen peak fear in Europe I think there may be another bout of peak fear in Europe uh, as winter sets in uh, with supply chain disruptions for energy and so forth. But uh, I think this is a marvelous entry point for Europe, for Japan because of uh, Taiwan saber rattling uh, and for emerging markets because of ripple effects associated with fears that the emerging economies won't have enough food for their people, won't have enough energy for their businesses. And these are all legitimate fears. Narratives exist because they're partly true. Changes in narratives are what moves markets. The great thing about narratives is that they're usually true. The bad thing about narratives is that they're already in the share price. They're already in the market. Unless you identify a narrative that nobody's talking about, which is sort of the antithesis of the narrative, it's already in the share price. So you want to buy when the narratives are saying, giving you a million reasons to get out. And you want to sell when um, there's nothing to fear. So speaking of fear, I want to take advantage of having having Darren on our call today to ask, have we reached peak fear in crypto? Um, Yeah, um, thanks, Lauren. Uh, I would say no. Uh, it's tempting to think that uh, we've seen uh, Bitcoin, the major crypto, um, fall quite precipitously given the bankruptcy um, of, uh, of FTX and the fallout that we are going to continue seeing. Um, but I don't think um, Bitcoin is done falling um, for a few reasons. Um, uh, one is that the technicals uh, still don't look great uh, for Bitcoin. 
Um, if you talk to some technical analysts, they'll tell you that uh, Bitcoin, um, it was around 21,000 uh, in early November before uh, FTX collapsed. It's uh, collapsed. It's now around 16,000. Um, there was a technical support level around 18,000. It hasn't gotten back to there. Um, and so the next support level is probably around 13,000 or maybe even lower than that. I think JP Morgan has put out a target of around 10,000 where Bitcoin could um, go down to. There are a few reasons for that. Um, one is that uh, there's still a lot of leverage um, built up in crypto. Um, it will need to unwind. And we're still seeing um, various trading firms and market makers um, uh, reveal their exposures to FTX. Um, if there's forced selling um, and liquidations in Bitcoin, uh, it could put more pressure um, on the token and bring down kind of the broader token market. Darren, how should ordinary investors who are not terribly involved with crypto consider the collapse of FTX? Is this just an old-fashioned financial fraud wrapped in new age clothing? Is it something that could have ripple effects in other risk markets? What's your take? Uh yeah, I, I don't think it's having ripple effects in other risk markets. Crypto is pretty well contained. Um, we haven't seen um, bond yields, uh, the spreads in yield blow out like we did um, during the 2008 financial crisis. Um, so the ripple effects are for now pretty contained in crypto. But that said, um, you know, they're not trivial, um, especially for people in crypto. I mean, this is still a market that's worth over $800 billion dollars. Um, it's, it's a fraction of Apple's market cap, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have put money in crypto here and there. Um, there's a lot of hedge funds. There's a lot of venture capital. There's pension funds, um, that are now marking down their investments, um, to zero as a result of FTX. I think it does raise questions, a lot of questions about, um, whether this is an industry that can survive without significantly more regulation and guardrails in place, um, both for the institutional and retail investor. Um, this is going to increase pressure on Washington, on the SEC and CFTC and other regulatory agencies um, to come up with comprehensive rules and guardrails for crypto, um, for consumer protections. And it kind of raises questions about whether you can trust anybody in this ecosystem. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was considered, um, uh, he was very well regarded. Um, you know, he, he testified on Capitol Hill in favor of regulations. Um, uh, a lot of um, very um, uh, well-known venture capital and pension funds uh, put money and invested in FTX because they believed that, uh, that Bankman-Fried um, was kind of one of the good guys. Um, he said all, all the right things. Now it looks like it, it may be a fraud uh, of a massive scale like Enron. Um, and it kind of calls into question, you know, who you can really trust in crypto, where you can put your assets so that they're safe, um, and whether there is really a future, I think, for the technology itself, for blockchain technology that was supposed to upend traditional finance, but in the end might turn out to be just another uh, you know, a way that traditional finance evolves with all of the guardrails and all the regulations and the big intermediaries that um, we've always had and that have protected people for many, many years. Traditional finance is still alive and well, we should point out. Absolutely. So. And crypto is going to look more like traditional finance um, as we go along. Yeah, I think we'll come back at another point to the topic of pension funds and, and endowments and so forth, investing in crypto. I think there's more to say there. But I want to go to listener questions for now. We have a question for Rob from Basant. He wants to get your thoughts on 
the interest rate cycle ahead, where we're headed, and what the what your recommended current asset allocation would be for an average person in retirement, to the extent that there is an average person in retirement. Um, well, of course, there's an average, but almost nobody's at that average. average. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> a few observations on interest rates. Firstly, uh, the right tail of the inflation distribution is largely ignored. It means that inflation uh, may be worse than consensus expectations. Um, one measure of consensus expectations is the gap between treasury bonds and the inflation-linked bonds of the same maturity, and that's called break-even inflation because uh, the tips deliver a real yield plus uh, inflation. And so if yield plus inflation matches that of the treasury bond yield, they break even, they have the same return. Well, break even inflation on a 10 year basis is 2.3%. What? We're sitting at 7%, we hit a high of 9%. The right tail of the distribution largely ignored would say it might take 10 years to get back down to four, let alone two. Uh, the median, the median expectation uh, drawn from history would be 4% for the coming decade, 5% for the coming five years. And we're looking at 2.3 as a break-even inflation rate. So one takeaway from this, it's uh, very, very simple, is whatever you have in treasury bonds, uh, why not move it over to TIPS, to inflation-linked bonds? Because unless inflation finishes the coming decade at less than 2.3%, you'll have been better off for doing so. Now, this doesn't help you necessarily in the coming three months or six months or 12 months, but for a buy and hold investor, it's a much better choice. Uh, another takeaway is if this inflation doesn't moderate, the Fed will likely be forced to boost rates further. And in so doing, you're going to wind up with, A, a, a recession that gets worse than what we would likely face today, and uh, B, interest rates pushed higher. Not the tips rates, not the inflation-linked bonds, but basic bond interest rates. Um, so I'd be a little wary of conventional bonds. I wouldn't be wary of tips, not at these uh, levels of inflation. The long end of the tips market is yielding almost 2%. Doesn't sound like much, and it isn't, but 2% real yield backed by full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury is not a bad yield. And you get the inflation kicker. Uh, for, uh, one of the things, one of our senior advisors is a guy named Cam Harvey. And in his PhD dissertation back in 1988, he's the one who first noticed that an inverted yield curve predicts recessions. I would say it doesn't predict inflation uh, recessions, it creates them because the Fed is taking the short rate, which they control, above the long rate, which is set by the market. The market basically says the reward for deferring consumption for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, is foreign change percent per annum, um, all right. And if the Fed takes the short rates to 5%, then the Fed is basically saying the reward for deferring consumption short term uh, is greater than the long-term reward, which doesn't make sense. Or put a different way, the cost of borrowing for a year or three months is higher than the cost of borrowing for 30 years, which doesn't make sense. 
So I wish that when they say data dependent, that they would acknowledge that one piece of data that they pay far too little attention to is the long end of the yield curve, which is set by the market. Good point. So we have a couple of other questions coming in. I want to pose a question for you from Lee. He wants to know, given your studies and possible ways that interest rates and future inflation could play out, should one put new money in the stock market at this point? And if so, is stock selection important or would you stick with an index fund? A um, couple of nuanced answers. One, I like to buy what's cheap. U.S. stocks aren't cheap. Uh, the Bob Schiller created a measure called the Schiller P.E. ratio, which takes the ratio of share prices to 10-year average earnings. So it gets you away from measuring P.E. ratios on peak or trough earnings and takes the ratio of price relative to sustainable long-term earnings. And that Schiller P.E. ratio for the U.S. stock market is 28, 28 times earnings. Um, what's magical about 28? Well, that was the high watermark before the global financial crisis. The bull market from 02 to 07 took us to a Schiller P ratio of 28. The bear market of this year took us down to that same ratio. So the U.S. market is not cheap. U.S. value stocks are fine. And so if I'm looking at uh, buying in the U.S., I would look to buy the value side of the spectrum. Uh, we invented the concept of fundamental index back in 2004. Fundamental index is a value strategy, and it beats the value indexes uh, roughly seven, seven out of every 10 years over the last 18 years. Um, it's pretty relentless as a better approach to value investing. Uh, so that's one thought. The other thought is there are stocks around the world that are cheap. Emerging markets value stocks are priced at eight times earnings. Uh, emerging markets fundamental index is priced at seven times earnings. Those are cheap. And EFA, uh, Europe, uh, Europe, Asia, Australia, Far East, the uh, EFA index, which has basically developed markets outside the US, uh, is for value side of the market is priced at 10 to 11 times earnings. So I like the idea of buying EFA or buying emerging markets on the value side of the spectrum at these prices. They are cheap. And when we cross the threshold of peak fear, they can beat the U.S. market handily on the way up. All right. We will watch for that. We have talked a lot about stocks. We've talked some about crypto. We have a question about the credit markets. James asks, what is the expected course of QT? That's quantitative tightening and the projected effects on the credit markets? Well, I'm not a Fed watcher, so um, my knowledge of QE versus QT is, is limited. I, I would say that the Fed um, uh, tends to be behind the curve uh, far too much in terms of what's going on with inflation and what's going on with the economy, disturbingly so. But be that as it may, um, uh, they do seem committed to QT, which is a form of tightening uh, that augments the impact of rising uh, Fed funds rates. So they're engaged in two versions of tightening right now. 
And uh, the danger is that that pushes us into recession. Um, you've got 7% mortgage rates now. You had two and a half uh, two years ago. Um, this is um, not a formula for continued success in the uh, building markets, uh, in the real estate markets. And there's no such thing as a recession without a recession in the buildings in building industry. And there's no such thing as a recession in the building industry that doesn't ripple across and become a recession in the broad economy. Uh, there are no exceptions to that linkage. And so I would say that uh, they're at risk of killing the uh, building community and the real estate community, um, uh, which would kill the economy. And by kill, that's perhaps too strong a word. Right now, I would expect a moderate recession. But if they keep going, if they take Fed funds to five, to six, to seven, without paying attention to what's happening at the long end of the yield curve, which is set by the market, and which says four is about right, um, if they do that, then we're looking at a increased likelihood of a, a deeper recession. All right. Last question is from Steve. He wants to know why the VIX, which is the volatility index, hasn't gone up so much, even though the markets are so volatile. He asks if the VIX is a bad gauge of how volatile the markets are today. Well, firstly, VIX at 24, which it is today, um, is elevated. Historic norm is 16 to 18. Low VIX is 10 to 12. 24 is elevated. 30 is extremely elevated. But at 24, we're in the top, um, oh, top 15%, I would guess, of historic norms. So we're well above historic norms. VIX is basically saying the market in the coming weeks and months is poised to be um, volatile. And uh, so how volatile um, do you think it ought to be? It did get up uh, above 30 not too long ago, a few weeks ago. Um, and it, it, it pogos around. But at this stage, I would say it, it looks in line with what I would expect. Uh, stocks having 24% volatility, that's way above historic norms. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's about what we get. Well, I guess when you're remembering the 30, 24 doesn't look so bad, but you're right, based on historical analysis, it yeah. is something high. So we're going to leave it at that today. Rob, I want to thank you. And Darren, I thank you as well. And I thank our listeners too. It's a great time to thank you for your participation in Barron's Live all year. We're about to enter our third year with our daily readers call, and we could not do it without this wonderful audience. Please come back tomorrow on Barron's Live my colleague, Baron senior writer, Lauren Foster, will speak with Paul Kim, CEO of Simplify Asset Management. They'll be talking about the firm's suite of exchange-traded funds, the strategies that did and didn't work this year. You heard about some of them today. And what 2023 might bring for ETFs and investors. Thanks again, Rob and Darren. And thanks to our audience. Have a wonderful holiday, everyone. But don't forget. This has, to been, great. This has been great fun. Happy Thanksgiving, all. Thanks. Thank you very much. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.